Praise the Lord. I don't really have a message tonight, but I've got something that's been stirring around in my heart for the last several days. Let's start in the book of Jonah. I know your Bible just automatically falls open to the book of Jonah. Give you a chance to check the table of contents to find out what page that's on or what books it's between. How many of you ever heard the story of Jonah and the whale? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Bible says in Jonah chapter 1 that uh, God speaks to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh to tell the people to repent because if they don't, then judgment's going to come upon the nation. And Jonah does like a lot of people do. They run the other way. He boards a ship going in the opposite direction. But like with everybody else that's ever tried that, that doesn't work. There comes a storm, and it's not a normal storm. Jonah doesn't seem to be bothered by it. He's asleep. Finally, the sailors and everybody else on board wake him up and say, you've got to wake up and entreat your God to stop this thing just like we're doing with our gods. And finally, they identify that uh, that Jonah's the problem, and Jonah tells them to throw him overboard. That's the only way they can be saved, and so he does. They do. They throw him over. And the Bible says God prepares a fish to swallow Jonah up. Now, in chapter 2, here's the part of the story that we want to focus on. Let me, before I start reading, let me, let me say this. Sooner or later, you have to face up to what God has for you to do. You can do it the easy way. You can do it the hard way. Jonah's an example of doing it the hard way. But sooner or later, regardless of the circumstances, you're going to have to face up to whatever it is God has for you to do. There's no good reason to run from it. It doesn't work. I believe the book of Jonah is there in, in large part to show us that it doesn't work to run from God. And so we ought to just face up to it right away. Nevertheless, Jonah's in the middle of the fish now. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Now I want you to notice when he starts crying. He starts crying because of the trouble that he's in. He's not crying in the middle of the storm. He's asleep. But now things have gotten bad enough where he's in the belly of the fish. And he says, I cried unto the Lord in my affliction, and he heard me. Now let's stop and think about this for a minute. Who wrote the book of Jonah? We have no reason to think that Jonah didn't, that anybody other than Jonah did. There's every indication that Jonah is the author. But Jonah's not taking notes as this thing is happening. He's relating the story after the fact. And so he's relating what happened and how it happened. And notice Jonah's position. The first thing that we see about Jonah, even though he's run from God, even though he sinned and rebelled against God, apparently for the reason that he identifies in the next chapter, is that he didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent. He wanted judgment to fall on that city and upon the nation. But here's Jonah telling us about his position and what he did when he was in the middle of trouble in the worst possible circumstances that I can imagine. He said, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Notice Jonah's sin didn't keep God from hearing him. Jonah's unwillingness to obey God didn't keep God from hearing his prayer. Neither will yours or mine. God's always ready to listen when we're ready to crawl. I cried unto the Lord by reason of my affliction and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I and heard my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, 
In the midst of the seas and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet will I look again toward thy holy temple. Jonah knew the answer. He knew the answer even though he was in a backslidden condition. The answer was to look back to God and his plan and purpose. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, it's describing his condition in the middle of the fish. He's at the greatest point of despair. He's at the point of giving up. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. Notice verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Notice what Jonah knew in the belly of the fish. They that forsake, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Notice what he's calling the lying vanity, the fish. The circumstance with weeds wrapped around his head. Now, I don't know too much about fish anatomy or the fish digestive system. But I would imagine that it's something similar to what we understand about other animals in human digestive systems. And that is there's got to be something in the middle of the fish that breaks down whatever it eats so that it can digest it. Well, that's what Jonah's swimming around in whatever that might be. The weeds are wrapped around his head. He's in the ultimate of despair. My soul fainted within me. He's at the point of losing hope. And then he says this. He says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Folks, the story is not Jonah and the whale. It's Jonah and the lying vanity. Now, what is the lying vanity? The lying vanity is the natural circumstance The physical reality that says he can't be delivered. So what does he mean when he says they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy? It means simply this. Anyone who allows natural circumstances, even physical realities, to keep them from believing God for the blessing that the natural circumstance and the physical reality contradicts, Give up God's blessing. Now, can I ask you a question? Well, let's finish reading. There's a couple of more verses, and then I'll pose my question. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Apparently, he made a vow. God, get me out of here, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it delivered Jonah gently upon the dry land. The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. That's quite an entrance to a revival. Here's the question. Where did Jonah get that kind of faith? You remember in Matthew chapter 8, when the centurion comes to Jesus? He says, Master, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus says to him, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion or his agent 
says to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority. I understand how authority works. I've got people under me, soldiers under me, and when I tell them to do something, they do it. I don't have to check up on them and find out. They obey what I tell them to do. So you speak the word, and that will be sufficient for my servant to be healed. You remember what Jesus said? It says that Jesus marveled and said unto them, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. We talk about the fact that the centurion had great faith, and he did. And his reason for great faith is identified in the scripture that he had an understanding of authority. He understood that authority is exercised by the spoken word. He understood that it didn't take a physical presence or a natural circumstance to bring about the desired result, the healing that he wanted for a servant. The only thing that was necessary was for Jesus to speak the word. But there's another part to this that we don't usually look at. And here's the part that I really want to focus on this evening. Here's the part that's really been stirring around in my heart. When Jesus marvels and says, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The implication is there should have been people under the Abrahamic covenant that had that kind of faith. Jesus isn't just marveling because this man has great faith. He's marveling that he hadn't found that kind of faith before. Jonah's got that kind of faith. Where did he get it? Jonah's got the kind of faith that, that says... I've prayed. Obviously, he's prayed for deliverance. He made his vows before the Lord. So obviously, he's prayed for deliverance. And then he says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Since I've prayed to observe, to pay attention to, to give attention to the fish and the, the nasty surroundings associated with being in the belly of the fish, is to forsake that which I've prayed for. Folks, I want you to understand something. If the physical reality of Jonah being in the belly of the fish was not enough to keep him from being delivered and his prayer from being answered, then Jesus really must have meant what he said when he told us that all things are possible to them that believe. But you know as well as I do, that the number one thing that causes people not to receive from God is because they look at the circumstances. They let the physical realities that surround them convince them that the word of God can't be true for them. I'm back to my original question. Where did Jonah get this kind of faith? Now the book of Jonah takes place about a thousand years after Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. So I would submit it to you that he's learned the same way that the Bible tells us to learn, and that is from the faith of Abraham. You remember what Romans chapter 4 says about Abraham? It says, speaking of telling about what God said to and about Abraham, he says, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope. He had no natural circumstance to hope in when it came to having Isaac when he was 100 years old. Had no natural circumstance to trust in. 
Nothing to indicate that the promise of God could possibly be true or could possibly come to pass. No natural circumstance whatsoever. The physical reality contradicted everything that God said. So he didn't have any natural circumstance. He didn't have any physical reality to place his hope in. Yet he still had hope. So where did he get his hope? According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Who against hope believed in hope. To the end that he might become the father of many nations. And the basis for that hope was what God had spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. His body was his lying vanity. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. There's another lying vanity. Now Jonah had to have gotten this. If he didn't get it from Abraham, I don't know who he got it from. Jonah's under the Abrahamic covenant, so we know that he knows about him. The timeline is such, I think I may have mentioned just a moment ago, that there's about a thousand years difference between Abraham and Jonah. But if not from Abraham, then who? Who is his example of faith? Who schooled Jonah into the confidence, the absolute certainty, that physical realities cannot stop the power of God from coming to pass when you speak and ask him? Being not weak in faith, Abraham considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. I like the American standard and the revised standard. I think it's very similar. It says, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. But was strong in faith. If he didn't look at the lying vanities, if he didn't observe the lying vanities of his body and Sarah's body being dead, physical realities... What did he look at? He looked at the promise of God. But looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. We see Jonah following the same pattern. I will make a sacrifice of thanksgiving, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving in the middle of the fish. I'm sure he thanked God after he was vomited up on the dry land too. But then it wasn't a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's probably so glad to be out in the middle of that fish. Everything else didn't matter. But the sacrifice of thanksgiving is praying in the middle of the fish. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is praying before you see the child. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is to thank God while the walls are still up. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded, fully persuaded, fully persuaded... Fully persuaded and being fully persuaded and being fully persuaded. Are you fully persuaded? Well, uh, we want to be. But that's different from being. And being fully persuaded. Jonah was fully persuaded. He was fully persuaded enough to say that the fish that he was in was a lying vanity. It was a non-issue. He didn't deny the reality. He didn't go around confessing, I'm not in the fish, I'm not in the fish, I'm not in the fish, I'm not in the fish. That's not faith. Faith calls things that be not as though they were. His confession would have been something like, I'm delivered because the Lord heard me. I'm delivered because the Lord heard me. 
I'm delivered because the Lord hears and answers prayer. So he says that the fish is a lying vanity. It sounds like being fully persuaded to me. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Fully persuaded means this. It means a faith that asks no more questions. That's what being fully persuaded is. No more questions. One of the definitions of faith is unquestioning trust. You know as well as I do that when we start believing God for things that seem to be impossible, we start off acknowledging what the Word of God says. And we acknowledge the Word of God to be true from a mental perspective. Well, I believe the Word's true. If the Word says, I was healed by the stripes of Jesus, then that has to be true because I know the Word of God. I know the Bible is the Word of God. But there's a big difference in that. And coming to the place where you're out of questions. I've seen people ask all kinds of questions when it comes to believing for healing. Not just healing, but including healing. I've seen people come up with all kinds of questions like this. Well, Pastor Mike, I believe the word of God is true. I believe Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses and with his stripes I was healed. But how's the power of God going to work? Am I going to get gradually better? Or is the power of God going to be on display in some way, in an instantaneous manner, at some point, so that my body amends? Well, that's an interesting question. And it might be something for us to speculate about or debate at a later time. But that question will keep you from receiving your healing. See, fully persuaded means you're out of questions. Doesn't mean you have all the answers. But it means the questions don't matter anymore. It means I believe I received my healing and that's it. Because that's what the devil wants to do is get you into questions. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but how do you feel? Yeah, but what did the doctor say? Yeah, you know that not all healing is instantaneous. How long are you going to have to stand in faith? And on and on and on and on. Fully persuaded means the questions are over. Whether you have the answers for them or not. The word of God is true because it's the word of God. That's where Abraham came to. In fact, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. We know the end result of Abraham's faith. He has a child when he's 100 years old and Sarah's 90. But that's not the last time Abraham has to use his faith. Maybe not even the greatest time that he had to use his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17. The author of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. Relates when Isaac was offered up as a sacrifice. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac And he that had received the promises offered his only begotten son. In other words, it took great faith 
the example of great faith for the son to be born. But now here, some anywhere from 12 to 15 years later, perhaps, his faith is tested again. Here's the reason that this is important. God told Abraham, your seed shall be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Abraham had no natural circumstance to hope in whatsoever. We just read that in Romans chapter 4. Who against hope believed in hope. He didn't have anything to hope for. As a matter of fact, when God finally speaks to him about Isaac being born, about a year before it takes place, Abraham has given up and he's talking about being blessed through Ishmael. The son of Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid. And God says, yeah, I'll bless him because he's of your seed too. But the blessing that I was talking about, the blessing that I promised you was through Isaac. We'll be born about this time next year. But now that Isaac is born, and he begins to grow. Abraham puts everything he has into this boy. Teaches him everything about God and about life that he knows. And he has something to hope in now. He has a natural circumstance to hope in. He can look at Isaac and say, yep, well, God said Isaac would be the one in whom all my seed would be blessed. So he's got something to hope for. He's got something to hope in. It's like believing for healing and then starting to get better. That's where a lot of people change their faith from being in what God's word says to looking at the circumstances that are better than they were when they started. That's where Abraham is now. And that's not the kind of faith that God brings his greatest blessings to bear with. He's got to get Abraham back over into the place where he, where he originally was. So... He tells Abraham, take Isaac and offer him up as a sacrifice. God never told him to kill him. That would be a sin. God's commandment is thou shalt not kill. Literally, thou shalt not murder. It means to shed innocent blood. So God didn't tell him to kill him. He said, offer him up as a sacrifice. So Abraham does. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Why did Abraham do this? Or what was Abraham looking at? We know that he was looking at the promise of God to begin with for Isaac to be born when he was 100 years old. Now some 12, 15, 17 years later, something like that. What's he looking at now? Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. In other words, that means this. It means that he knew that Abraham, that God's promise was that in Isaac shall your seed be blessed. So if I offer Isaac, my son, on the altar, if his life is spent on the altar, the promise of God is that in Isaac, my seed will be blessed. So if God has to raise him from the dead, then he will. And there where it says from whence he received him in a figure, it means very simply this. It means as far as Abraham was concerned, God had already raised him from the dead. 
If he spares his life when I offer him on the altar, good. If he doesn't spare his life, then he'll have to raise him from the dead to make good his promise to bless me through him. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Isaac on the altar, Isaac dead, the physical reality of what he's headed to, what he's headed for, is a lying vanity. It won't stand. If God has to raise him from the dead, then so be it. Now, folks, you remember over in Matthew, in, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about those that built their house on the sand versus those that built their house on the rock. He said, the doer of the word is like the man that builds his house on the rock. The man that hears the word but doesn't do it is like the man that builds his house on the sand. He said, the same storm comes to both. The winds blew, the storms rage, the waves come in. The thing that makes the difference is not the storms. We all face the storms. Now, some people will say that Jesus is talking about building your house on the rock, meaning Jesus is the rock of our salvation. But if that were the case, then Christians never would fail. They would endure all the storms of life with success. But you know that's not the case. What is the case? The case is those that endure the storms of life with success and stand through it are those that are doers of the word. Those that become fully persuaded that no physical reality, no natural circumstance can keep the word of God from coming to pass in your life. Look with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 17. For our light affliction, that means whatever test, trial, or trouble you face. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You remember both Peter and, and Paul said, the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. That's not the way it feels when you're being tried. That's not the way it feels when you're in the middle of a test. It's not the way it feels when you're in the middle of adversity. But the trying of your faith is more precious than gold in this respect. It creates a confidence that God is faithful if you hold fast. If you take the position that Jonah took, that no natural circumstance, no physical reality is worth considering as greater than the word of God and the promise thereof. You come through the storms of life with that kind of position, which will bring you through it with success every time. You come through in that kind of position, and you can learn to count it joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Because it's just another opportunity to prove God's victory through Jesus. Just another opportunity to show the victory of God that we have through Christ Jesus over the devil. That's the only way that the trying of your faith would be more precious than gold, folks. See, there's a great truth that many people never find. And that is that place of not being afraid 
being delivered from fear totally and completely most people go through their life talking a good game most word people go through life talking a good game but they never conquer their fear of the devil or sickness or trouble or whatever the case might be but folks Jesus died to destroy the works of the devil came to the earth offered himself as a sacrifice to destroy the works of the devil to destroy him that had the bondage of fear and death God doesn't want you afraid of anything the Bible says the Lord is the strength of my life of whom shall I be afraid that's a good thing to ask yourself who is it that I should be afraid of sickness disease poverty lack government who is it that I should be afraid of demons temptation oppression who is it that God wants me to be afraid of nobody see you come to the kind of place that we see in Jonah even after he sinned even after he backslid rebelled against God even with Abraham Abraham was in a place of unbelief when God spoke to him when he was 99 years old told him about Isaac being born Abraham laughed there's only one reason he would laugh and that is he's looking at the circumstances of his body but he changed what he looked at God doesn't want you afraid of anything or anybody it'd be a good practice for you to tell the devil I'm not afraid of you and when I say that some people are thinking well I don't know if I'd want to do that they might whisper it the Lord is the strength of my life of whom shall I be afraid I'm not afraid of you devil make sure you don't say it loud enough for him to hear you though right devil I'm not afraid of you I'm not afraid of sickness and disease I'm not afraid of poverty or lack I'm not afraid of trouble I'm not afraid of people I'm not afraid of you because the Lord is the strength of my life. That's where God wants you to be in every respect. Well, let's finish reading this. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, John Osteen used to say one of the phrases that is repeated in the Bible over and over again is it came to pass it didn't come to stay it came to pass the devil's trouble comes to pass not to stay for our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory folks the trying of your faith is more precious than gold if you come through with the confidence that the word of God gives us there is not one test, there is not one trial, there is not one trouble, there is not one adversity that you will not be glad to have experienced. Because if you experience it by standing on the word and holding fast your profession of faith, then you come through with victory every time. So you can thank God for the victories that you experienced. Great victories come out of great battles. 
Great faith comes out of great tests. Well, I'm trying to finish this. I can't get off the verse. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not. Here's how it works to victory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Same thing as Romans 4 is telling us about Abraham. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Being not weak in faith, he considered not the lying vanities of his dead body and the lying vanity of Sarah's dead body. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. You know what temporal means? It means subject to change. There is not one physical reality in your life, not one natural circumstance that surrounds you that is not subject to change according to the word of God. Now, I mean that in two ways. I mean, according to the word of God, every natural circumstance and every physical reality is subject to change. The Bible tells us that. But the way that it changes is according to the word of God. The word of God spoken by you will change any natural circumstance. It'll change any physical reality. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The word of God and the promise that it brings to you in your circumstance and in your life and in your situation is more real than the physical reality that says it cannot be. The physical reality is subject to change. The word never changes. The word of God endures forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never fail. They that observe lying vanities, forsake, give up, turn loose of their own mercy. I don't know about you, but I'm not turning loose of mine. Amen? Yeah, but you don't understand, Pastor Mike. Here's the situation. I don't care what the situation is. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. That verse of scripture just keeps going over and over and over again on the inside of me. They that observe lying vanities, lying vanities, the symptoms in your body are lying vanities. The lack of money in your bank account is a lying vanity. The guilt that you feel over mistakes that you've made is a lying vanity. They that observe lying vanities forsake by choice, forsake, turn loose of, give up on their own mercy. I think one of the greatest tragedies that will be experienced in all of human history is when the church gets to heaven, Jesus comes back for the church and we're all in heaven and the church's eyes are opened once and for all to everything they could have had that the word says was ours. People are going to realize how much they forfeited in life because they allowed the circumstances, the lying vanities around them to turn loose of the promise of God. The Bible says in heaven God will wipe away every tear. There's going to be a lot of tears when people see that stuff. 
They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Folks, I don't know how to say this strongly enough. But the word of God cannot fail. No matter what it looks like. No matter how we feel. No matter who says what. The word of God cannot fail. It cannot fail. That means if we hold fast the word. Meaning what Paul said. Writing to the church. Hold fast the profession of your faith. That's holding fast to the word. You can't fail either. Because the word never fails. If we hold fast long enough, the physical realities will change. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word of God that never fails, it never changes, never comes to an end, never falls short. We thank you, Lord that we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are therefore righteous. We may not look like it and we may not feel like it, but we are. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. We may not look like it and we may not feel like it, But according to the word of God, therefore the truth is, we are healed. Jesus was made poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Therefore the blessing of Abraham is ours, and we are rich, prospered in everything we put our hand to. We may not look like it, and we may not feel like it. But according to the word of God, that's the truth. So we say... To exercise our authority in the earth through the words of our mouth, we say we are righteous, we are healed, and we are prospered. In Jesus' name. We look only to your word, Lord. We choose not to observe lying vanities, natural circumstances, physical realities that say otherwise. Because your word is true. Thank you, Lord, for bringing your word to pass for each and every one of us according to our faith. So be it done unto us. So be it done unto us. Mr. Devil, we're not afraid of you. We're not afraid of sin. We're not afraid of guilt. We're not afraid of shame because we're made the righteousness of God in Christ. We're not afraid of sickness and disease, for we were healed by his stripes. We're not afraid of poverty or lack, for the blessing of Abraham is ours. We've been made rich, and everything we put our hand to prospers. We're not afraid of you, Mr. Devil. Not anymore. And never again. We've been delivered from the bondage of fear and death. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, we worship you. We magnify you for your goodness and your holiness and your mercy. Lord, your word says that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting 
upon them that fear him, fear you, and your righteousness unto children's children. Your word says that you are the light of our life, the strength of our life. And there is no one that we should be afraid of. You told us not to fear, Lord, for you are with us. You told us not to be dismayed or distracted or discouraged because you are our God. You said you would strengthen us. We thank you for doing it. You said you would help us. Thank you for your help. You said you would uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. Thank you that you've made us righteous in Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The victory is ours through faith in every aspect of our lives. We refuse to observe lying vanities. They may be physical realities, but if they contradict the word, then they're lying vanities. And we refuse to observe those lying vanities and forsake our own mercy. But instead, we choose to take hold by faith to the mercies of God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. You've been so good to us. Thank you for the tests, the trials, and the adversities. We count it joy. Knowing that the trying of our faith works patience. But we know that when patience has its perfect work, we'll come through with victory, perfect and entire, wanting nothing. For that reason, Lord, we realize, we recognize that the trying of our faith is more precious than gold because we get to prove you faithful and to exercise your victory through Jesus over the evil one. What a privilege, Father. What a privilege. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true and it will always be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week.